Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as host Andy Hagens interviews asset managers, family offices, and industry thought leaders as they discuss the most effective strategies to grow generational wealth. From commodities to real estate, venture capital, private equity, and more, we cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Hagens, and we have an awesome guest today. Returning to the show is Kelly Ann Winget. Kelly, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me, Andy. I'm excited to be back. And we were just discussing before we started recording that our previous episode, and I'll make sure to link to it in the show notes, was actually one of our most popular episodes of all time. The topic was non-correlated private equity strategies. And you know what? Why don't we start there? Because we talked about that first fund, your first fund in our original show, which I think is a really unique product in the sense that you have several different private equity um, sectors represented with energy, with multifamily, manufacturing. Um, could you give us an update on how Diversified Fund One is is doing? Are there any new developments since our last show? Sure. So um, I think the last time we spoke, we were at about $15 million um, raised and deployed. And at this point, we're a little over $17 million raised and deployed. Um, we're over 25 individual portfolio companies inside of our diversified fund. So you have exposure to a lot of different businesses that you know span across energy to real estate manufacturing, and then what I call private equity, which are these equity-only deals, um, typically in like fintech or in the retail consumables uh, space. So you get a lot of diversification just from a single asset allocation, um, which if you were to do this on your own without you know, an active manager involved, you'd be deploying $50,000 at a time across 25 different portfolio companies. So it just takes a lot of that uh, due diligence pain off the shoulders of investors who have better things to do, like running their companies. Forget about due diligence. I just don't want to get 25 K1s because, um, you know, two or yeah, three of them are going to be true. late, right? <laughs> yes. Especially when you're dealing with oil and gas, you just kind of have to you know, be prepared. So we send out one K one, uh, and I deal with the headache of getting all those other documents. in. it's, it's the best part of the job, right? Best part of being an asset manager. (laughs) Yes. Um, I like the portfolio companies that we're invested in. So, um, you know, our, our open communication between me and the asset managers is really good. So I don't have to do too much chasing. They, they know what my expectations are. Okay. So, Big picture. Let's let's zoom out and and you know the fund that fund is really cool because it's it's truly diversified, which is kind of rare even in the alternative investment space. But you know, I know you're kind of a big picture thinker. You you come from the family office world, um, you know, and, and you're re- reviewing real estate deals. You're looking at venture capital type startup deals. You're looking at multifamily commercial real estate. What are the headlines that you're looking at right now? I don't want to say that keep you up at night, but that kind of give give you pause with where where the market is right now. So when you're this um, kind of off market, when you're in the private space exclusively, especially when we have so much exposure to like commodities for the most part, um, 
you know, the, the headlines we're looking at are on the global scale. So what's happening overseas affects, you know, what's happening here, what's happening here affects overseas. And so you really have to look at this, you know, micro economy situation or uh, macro, because when you dive down into it, everything that's happening globally is going to affect our portfolio in some way. And we just happen to, in the middle of the pandemic, when we decided to start this, we kind of saw this uh, world implosion thing happening. So the way that we're invested is really to kind of hedge that. So um, when you have a global pandemic where the world shuts down, you have entire economies shutting down. Um, it's going to be really hard to come back from that. So what can we invest in that's going to support, you know, rebuilding uh, entire societies, basically entire economies when the economy is changing from people going into stores, buying things to people staying at home, working. Mm-hmm. So there's all these factors you have to like constantly be on top of in order to see like what part of our portfolio is going to suffer from what right? So um, it helps that we're invested in energy. We're invested in manufacturing of ammunition when there's like a global world war happening um, in huge (laughs) energy states, Mm -hmm. right? So you have an entire piece of the energy market offline, Russia, right? Um, So where is that going to come from? Well, the United States has a lot of production here and it hasn't been invested in in 10 years. So let's focus there again, right? Ammunition, there's a world war going on, what happens during war people shoot guns we have bullets um it's a highly regulated space so there's only a certain group of people that are allowed to like operate in it mm-hmm. so we're able to attach ourselves to people that already have the licensing and the infrastructure to uh, handle an increase in demand of that type of product um, and that spans across all commodities um we're we're in what we call a commodity super cycle uh, where your can your tangible commodities are going to have more valuable more value than currency, right? So the more tangible commodity you can own, the more currency you have, um, and that's what's happening global globally is that your commodity is becoming a form of currency more than cash. So if you're sitting on cash, like now is the time to buy stuff. So quick question: um, Given that you invested in an ammunition company, energy, could I borrow your crystal ball? Um, maybe just rent it for a day or two. Um, but so, okay. So you've spotted these trends. I mean, did you, let me ask you this in regards to energy, because I do think that that is surprise. It surprised people. It's sort of continuing to surprise people that energy prices may just be high for the foreseeable future. Um, in a way it doesn't surprise me in the sense that seems like a lot of policymakers want energy prices to be high. So it's kind of the the hypotenuse, like the the simplest solution is usually the correct one. Um, do you think that, you know, is the market pricing in higher energy prices enough? I guess that's what I'm trying to ask. Um, so energy is a funny thing. And, and I don't have a crystal ball. I have a history book, right? It's just like, <laughs> this has happened. Or, um, and you know, it happened before I was even alive and I just know about it. And there's still these, these like constant red flags that keep getting raised of, you know, as things pop up in the government and like the headlines and stuff, it's like, okay, well, you know, here we go again. And if you can invest, you know, knowing that you had this happen before, um, it's going to be a pretty safe bet. And now with energy prices, 
you have a couple things going on. One is there's this energy independence thing happening. And um, in the energy space, we've had almost a decade worth of like the the beaten message of stop drilling, right? Um, from Wall Street, from the government. Uh, but the issue with that is, is that now the oil companies are doing that. They're sending, we have these record profits, right? But they're going back out to investors. They're going out through dividends. They're going out through... Um, you know, just cash flow back to the investors. In the past, that was used to reinvest back into the fields, right? Because when you're getting money from the banks, you have to prove production. Once you approve production, you get more credit from the bank to go drill more wells, right? That's not happening anymore. The banks want to be paid back. The investors want to get paid back. The government wants you to stop drilling. So that's what the message has been in the industry for at least the last like four or five now, years. Now, is that, is, that, is that like ESG driven from the corporate world? Yes. It's just... So this is really, it's not based on a, a pro forma or an analysis of future returns. It's just based on, this is icky. We don't want to invest in it or not even, I mean, just They're a just mandate. Right. And okay. uh, I mean, I, I literally, today's meeting I had at lunch today was with a bank that said they can lend to everything except for oil and gas and has not, they could, they say that the the deals that they can loan to in the oil and gas space would outperform anything else in their portfolio. They're just not allowed to do it. And they're like, we wish we could, but our hands are tied. We're just not allowed to. Um, and that's all the messaging that's coming from Wall Street. So, you know, the people that are crying, you know, the gas prices are really high and, you know, my utility bills are really high and like they need to be drilling more and, um, you know, not to get political, but Biden's also saying the same messages, but at the same time, on the other side of his mouth saying, don't drill anymore. Yeah. Um, it's hard for the industry, you know, even being in it is like, what do you actually want? Um, there's nothing we can do without private investors coming in and, and drilling it ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, prices are going to stay high for a long time, especially since, you know, the government's basically committed to um, buying back all of the supply they released when it goes back down to $75, $70 oil which is really great since all of the operators out here in the United States can drill for under 40 bucks. So if they can get a guaranteed government contract to refill the reserves at $70, they'll do it all day long. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a weird place to be right now because still people aren't investing, but the opportunities are like wild right now. So it, it sounds to me, and, and I've discussed this with other guests, that it's the perfect opportunity for private capital. Um, presuming that I don't have any compunctions investing in petroleum or, you know, uh, oil and gas deal. And personally, I don't, but pr presuming that one doesn't, this is, uh, what, what's the word? It's um, an inefficiency because institutional investors and corporate investors, they, they know the returns are, are there. It's, they know it's legal, but nevertheless, they're not investing because of ESG mandates or, or whatever, um, policies they have at the organizational level, political level, whatever. So it's basically, uh, I don't want to say free alpha, but it's 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 a wide open lane for family offices, for high net worth accredited investors to come in and provide that capital. Yeah. I mean, they have to understand that Wall Street works with really patient long-term money. These are mm -hmm. retirement accounts, pension funds, um, you know, endowments and stuff. So the fact that they're like no more oil and gas is because they can invest in things like renewables mm -hmm. without the expectation that that capital is going to leave their managed, like their managed AUM um, 
for decades, you know, even with the huge wealth transfer, they just think that it's just going to compile into the same account and get invested the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when you have these things that happen where people start pulling capital out of stuff. They get really worried. Um, it was kind of the whole point of last year when the government was trying to um, change the rules around your retirement accounts and restrict the Roth conversions um, and put caps on the um, on the IRAs, right? The gr- the growth that can happen in the IRAs, and that's because they don't want to they don't want the money to leave the accounts, mm-hmm. um, because if they do, then it all implodes, right? <laughs> so, um, right. this is that's the issue you're going to have. But if you're a private investor, I mean, the 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 world is your oyster. You know, you can invest in these things where the capital used to be and left at, at pennies on the dollar. Why wouldn't you? Um, you know, there's a lot of mitigated risk because this isn't like drilling like it was 15 years ago. Um, the technology's changed, the competition's changed. And as far as like the large operators, your Exxon Mobiles and um, your Devon, well, Devon's a private company, but your Exxon Mobil companies are are getting rid of things off their book that are small or um, in their older fields because they have to focus on these big production numbers in order to, you know, meet whatever mandate is coming from Wall Street. And that's the deal with publicly traded companies is that they answer to an entire pool of people and the public when privately owned companies are like, we're going to do whatever we want. And the only people we have to report to are like the handful of investors we work with who are all basically on the same page, mm-hmm. which yeah, is I mean, funny. Well, sure. And even renewables, even investment into renewables, even the Tesla coming off the line that gets transported to a dealership, all that does take hydrocarbon energy, right? At various points in production and transportation distribution. It's, it's just not going away. I'm sorry. Right. And charging, like you have, you had California where like, we're only going to have electric cars starting 2023 or 2030. And it's like, then the next day they told everybody in California not to charge their EVs (laughs) because they were having a power outage because they have enough power. Um, you know, you can't, you can't have that kind of, um, what is the word I'm looking for? Ultimatum when you don't have the infrastructure to support it. And w- the only way you could build the infrastructure to do that is to have cheap oil and you can't have cheap oil unless you drill for it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a, I know I always get into oil and gas when we're a diversified fund, but it really is the root of everything. Everything we do is based on, on, oil and natural gas. And if we don't make the investment and um, support it, then things are going to get really expensive for a really long time. Do you think that's going to happen? I mean, that exact thing that you just said, things are going to get really expensive for a really long long time. Do do you anticipate that happening? Yeah. I think we have this really delayed um, recession. Uh, And I don't even know if recession is the right word because they said that we haven't entered a recession, but we have, Um, is that you had 2020 and then you had people not only lose their jobs, but found new jobs, different jobs. Mm -hmm. And then you had influx of like support money from the government, right? But then people weren't spending money the same way they were pre-pandemic. So now they have more disposable income. So it's been delayed a year because now they're not spending money going out to restaurants or bars or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. So now they're or driving, right? They're staying home or they're working from home. So this gas, the money they were spending on gas or travel or anything like that is now being redirected into something else. Then they paid off debt, right? But now here we are and they're like coming back to normal 
and they're spending the same way. But rents have all increased like 10, 15, 20% some places in the United States. The cost of gas has gone up 100%. Utility bills have gone up 200%. You know, groceries have gone up 200%. Like Thanksgiving dinner costs, I don't know, you know, after everybody is going to be listening to this, but like Thanksgiving last year, and the year before might have cost a hundred to two hundred dollars to buy kind of everything. And this year, like I went to the grocery store and bought the same exact stuff. I bought like enough, like two pies, a turkey, and like sides and stuff. It was like five hundred dollars for no reason. So you you have these experiences for the real person, the reality, the grocery store bill um, that's getting very expensive, and it's not catching. It's not. It's going to surprise everybody. So the re- the type of recession we're going to have the next two years is going to affect basically everyone that makes $150,000, $200,000 and less. Everyone else is going to be fine. They're just going to have to like kind of buy less maybe, mm-hmm. but everybody else is going to be completely demolished. And um, you know that's going to be really bad, but it's not going to help anything to get better. So we have to figure out where to find that balance in the utility space. Um, or else it's going to just be really expensive for probably three years. Okay. Well, yeah. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> That's not the best news. No, tell us how you really feel. Well, <laughs> you know, but we were talking before recording and, you know, you mentioned heading into a recession and, and you're seeing these warning signs or, you know, flashing warning signals. And I want to talk about some of those, but is it, is it necessarily even a bad thing to be in a recession? Um, you know, isn't that where a lot of real wealth is built, provided that you have some dry powder, some cash on the sidelines? Yeah, I think there's a lot of cash sitting around um, because the deals just haven't been that great. And it used to be a ton of money is being poured into like the tech space. And that's not happening anymore because there's these terrible companies that are coming out being worth nothing um, or they haven't been doing what they said they've been doing. And so you're going to see a correction. I think it's kind of like, we're going to have a combined experience of 2008 and 2000 where you had this tech.com bubble and the housing bubble all coming together at once. Um, except for it's not.com it's, you know, it's, we work all over again for, you know, 10 or 15 different companies that everybody's heavily invested in. So do you, do you um, see that the tech, the tech bubble, is that it, we talking mainly publicly traded companies or like really late stage venture? Or are we talking, are you even seeing a bubble with like seed rounds and startups? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's getting really hard for companies to raise um, their first rounds of funding mm-hmm. and they're becoming more realistic. Like the same company that um, like a tech company, maybe three or four years ago, could probably raise $10 million pretty easily on their first round of funding. But now they're going after like maybe two or $3 million instead. And it's because they like, they don't need all that money. Tech never needed that much money to do anything. And you, that's, I think people are just coming back to reality. And the problem is, is that all the people that got into tech a couple of years ago and spent that money on those, those offerings, like are going to see that correction. And they're going to have to just wait until that company becomes profitable again. I mean, even with Elon Musk buying Twitter, uh, <laughs> the company's like a massive debt. Mm-hmm. Um, and he laid off everybody because the company didn't actually need all of that, um, which right. he recognized, but he still overpaid for it. And he had to sell his own company to you know, like a piece of his own company to, to purchase that deal. So right. I think he'll lose 100% of that. I think that'll be a complete waste of time and money for everybody involved. 
Yeah, yeah, the the debt there. I mean, the the normal private equity plan of you know stripping away um, unneeded overhead appears to be working. But as you say, if if you had to leverage yourself to the hilt to to get into a deal and then wildly overpay, it's not likely to be a good ending. So. So yeah. tech, that, that tech bubble may be deflating and that's probably, I mean, a lot of these things are just healthy resets, right? But, you know, one corner that we cover a lot, commercial real estate, and it's, it's interesting to me, it's, there's definitely opportunity in commercial real estate, but, you know, personally, I, I personally, as an investor, and I think a lot of other family offices and other high net worth investors are like we're, we're waiting around for this correction that you know maybe there's a little bit of movement but it's like it doesn't seem to be correcting as much as it should given the underlying yeah. fund am, am i wrong in that analysis you know how do you see the commercial real estate market um well the commercial real estate market is really interesting because um especially here where i am in texas i live in like north fort worth okay and there's nothing out there but ranches. And so those big ranch properties are being purchased and they're putting these massive uh, warehouses out there. So I think that in the commercial space, it's all going to be about space. How much space can you have um, and how much stuff can you fit inside of that space? But I said this at the beginning of 2020, or like the beginning of the pandemic. I always say the beginning of 2020, but the pandemic started in like April. But it when COVID hit and everybody went home and everybody was worried about this WeWork situation and, and the, the office spaces and everything, I said, you know, I think that, that the opposite is going to happen. I think people are going to get crazy in their houses and more people are actually going to go find an office space than stay at home um, because they just don't have the space in their house to separate their life from their professional life. Mm -hmm. um, I worked at home for 10 years before COVID and it actually drove me into the office. Um, <laughs> we're taking more phone calls on the phone and on the computer and you can only manage your dogs for so long before they think that you're talking to them. And uh, so it, it created a huge opportunity and every place that I've looked and have been in since I moved out into an office space has been fully renovated, like uh, fully leased. Um, you know, but you are consistent. in Texas, right? So it's, there's also... we're, we're an anomaly. So it's a little different than the rest of the world, but, um, you know, we didn't really shut down and a lot of businesses are moving here because we have the space, um, right. and the opportunity in the state space, but, um, I, the opportunity is coming. Um, the problem is, is that even the rates aren't scaring people away, especially from the residential in Texas. I'm going to talk about Texas only, but, um, because even if you even if your home prices went up ten percent or more, um, and then your rates are six, seven, eight percent now, uh, you people are still buying it because no one cares. They literally don't care. They'll buy it. They'll pay the mortgage because they're expecting the house price to keep going up crazy. Um, and if it doesn't, they'll just live in it forever, and they'll just refi when the rates come back down. So there's nothing making them afraid enough to stop doing that, which is what the feds are trying to do by raising the rates. Mm. They have to go to 12%. Like if they don't go to 12%, everyone's going to continue doing whatever they want. So the the residential, the consumer demand, that demand creates a floor, at least in the residential market. Yeah, I, I think I agree with that. Um, okay. So, you know, we've talked about some of the, the headwinds 
with energy and just in the overall economy. I want to talk about banks and the financial system uh, without giving away everything that we were talking about before we hit record. What are you noticing right now with what Warren Buffett's doing with our banking system? What should high net worth investors and family offices be looking at in that context? Um, So if you have not read the headline about Warren Buffett, he sold uh, several billion dollars worth of his stock in U.S. Bank. And this is like 50% of his share of that company, and which is a little ridiculous. And when when Warren Buffett makes those kinds of moves, it's because he, um, he he's going to come back in when there's blood in the streets. Um, I mean, he he's literally quoted for that. So if somebody like that is taking money out of the banks, he he knows something that we don't know. And, you know, just from my experience of working with a lot of banks, like either uh, holding our money from our fund or like trying to work on larger deals, is that banks aren't in the mood to lend, uh, but they they have to. So they're really picky about their deals, but they won't take the deals that make sense because it's too risky. Um, so they've really tightened the reins on what kind of things they're going to lend to, even though they're, they have to lend. I mean, the rates are really high, but no one wants to borrow from banks because they're not friendly to borrow from. So it's going to be really interesting because I don't think the banks are going to start. I don't think the banks are going to make any money. I think they're going to become irrelevant, especially when you have more and more people becoming private investors, investing less on Wall Street, doing hard money loans, doing loans with their friends, family, and IRAs into real estate. Um you know, real estate's really been the one who's been ringing the bell about, you know, take take care of your own financial freedoms through real estate investing and become your own bank. You know, that's where it started. So you have a lot of people that built a lot of wealth in real estate who are now just like, I don't need a bank to do this. I'll just do it myself. Um, and you see that investing across the board in the private investment space. So unless banks start getting better at lending money out to businesses, they're going to lose a lot of money. Um, they're not going to be able to handle all the cash that's sitting in the banks. So if you have cash, like put it somewhere else, because even though I, I get a lot of um, feedback from investors who are like, well, you know, I'll just put it in a CD and it's it's insured and guaranteed. And I know it will be there. I'm like, well, it's insured up to $250,000. And you're talking about buying a million dollar CD. Yeah. Well, at least, at least buy the CD from four different banks, right? I mean. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and get your 2% or whatever. Um it's, I think that people just need to be more, um, take a little bit more risk and invest in better stuff because you're a better investor than your bank. Your bank is not a good investor. They did it in 2008, they're still doing it now. They don't know it. Like they just are uncreative, I think, with their lending. Oh, I, I have to agree with that. Do you think, given that, as you said, they don't want to lend, are private mm-hmm. credit funds? Uh, private lenders, do you think they can really absorb, you know, can they fill that gap if if banks aren't lending, you know, is there enough capital in private credit funds and just in general that, that, I, that the economy- I think we'll have a hard time finding deals um, because when you, when you become a, you have a lot of deal flow within your network, but there's a lot more money than there are deals and um inside of your inside of your little community so it really takes work to get outside of that and find better deals and again you're trying to beat inflation <laughs> so or if they're borrowing money you have to beat that rate and if they're borrowing money eight percent like where can you put it that beats eight percent and if inflation's 12 15 or 17 percent 
where can you put it that's beating that? Uh, so I think deal flow is going to be the biggest problem for family offices and people with a lot of cash right now. So it's just going to take a lot of work and due diligence to like find that opportunity. Understood. So you referenced 12, 15, 17% inflation. Do you think the CPI is understating true inflation? Oh, yeah. I mean, they first of all, they separate food and energy out of that. <laughs> and um, it, again, it goes back to reality. Uh, I don't think that anybody who's posting numbers on Wall Street or the feds have any idea of what a real person's life is like. Um, but when you have pork products we used to be given away at the grocery store that now cost 15 and 20 dollars for a pork chop like that's that's a reality for people and when their grocery budget was a hundred dollars for the last five years six years and now they're going to the grocery store and they're spending three hundred dollars like where's that other two hundred dollars coming from um it's going on their credit cards so you know the, the reality of people's expenses has gone up you know, significantly. I mean, gas here in Texas is still around three dollars, but a year and a half ago, it was a it was a dollar seventy five. Groceries are two times what they were. Our electric bill for you know June, August, June, July, August, September was three hundred dollars when it should have been a hundred. So these are things that are going to catch up to people, and that's the reality for normal Americans. And I don't know why they're not publishing that because it's confusing to people. I call it gaslighting Americans into thinking that uh, inflation is 8% when it hasn't even been 2% for years. So they're saying, oh, inflation's been 2% for two decades. Like, no, it hasn't. So you have to play catch up and then get into the reality of what inflation is today. Well, yeah, I I can only agree with that. I mean, when they talk about the strong job market or wage growth, if, if nominal wage growth is not keeping pace with inflation, and that's even talking about the CPI, not, you know, true inflation, maybe as, as you would call it, then, you know, I hate to break it to everybody, that's negative wage growth um, in real terms. And, and as you said, with the data, um, we're seeing personal savings, I think even in the last quarter has just has plummeted. So, you know, are we, I mean, I, I would, I've already been saying that we're in a recession. I, everybody kind of frames that a little bit differently, but do you think we're entering or, or going into a deeper recession going into 2023? Yeah, I do. And what people need to be aware of is that the private equity space aren't um, borrowing right now. They're buying things in cash. They're just avoiding leveraging it all. Um, because they don't want somebody to call their note um, and they have the cash to buy it outright anyways. So you have a lot of these acquisitions being made in cash without the leverage. And so it's an interesting thing to see. I, we've always done that. We don't have any debt in our fund. Um, like I don't leverage anything in the fund to buy anything else. We buy it all in cash and own whatever our percentage outright. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's because I just, I don't want to have to report to anybody, you know, like if we're going to make a, a buy, we're going to make a buy and we're going to have the most negotiating power because we don't have to borrow for anything. You know, we come to the table with the money that we're going to spend and you're going to make the deal today with that money or you're not. And I think a lot of other private equity companies and family offices are doing that as well. So so then if we are going to that deeper recession next year, does it does it change anything about your investment strategy? I mean, aside from I'm imagining you'll continue to avoid debt, uh, you know, mm -hmm. leveraging 
pieces of the fund or, you know, individual assets against other assets? Is it, but is there anything, is there anything else about the strategy that might change? Are there certain sectors that are more relatively appealing than others? So we are going to close the diversified, the first fund out. So we'll stop taking investment into that uh, at the end of January. Um, so we'll, we're not going to, we have a couple more acquisitions we're going to make before the end of the year and then, and that'll be it. Um, so there's not going to be a change in strategy there. We've already committed to those things. Um, but we are launching new funds in 2023, which will have a bigger focus on um, most likely real estate because we we know that the opportunity is coming. So we're going to be a little bit more patient with our asset allocation for real estate because we are going to pick up these properties for nothing um, because people are just going to want to get them off their books. And we have the connections in order to make those bank relationships to buy notes off the bank that they just don't want to hold on their books anymore. Um, so I think that might be the biggest change of strategy of what we have now, because we do very little in the real estate space now. So you're talking about credit deals? Mm-hmm. Okay. And so the banks just want them off their books. So, you know, realistically, those are returns that could exceed the inflation rate. Cause I mean, that's my thing with credit is you hear about nine, 10% return. It's like, oh, that sounds great. But if the inflation rate is eight percent, it's you know it's not it's not really that strong, at least on an after-tax basis. Do you think you, you could be getting you know is there going to be more spread? I guess to be had in the years ahead. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I think the deals are going to get a lot juicier, and if you have the dry powder to to make a move, it's going to be really significant. And that's what you can see the the bigger investors doing that Buffett's doing it right now. He's just liquidating things that he knows is about to go on fire sale. That's what he's done for since the beginning of time. Since he's old as time um, is that he pulls his money off the table. He waits for a bloodbath and then he comes back in and saves the day. So that sounds deflationary to me. See, this is what, this is what I, I get it all mixed up in my head. Okay. And I just like get stuck. So Kelly, you have to help me get this unstuck in my head. Because I I agree with you, you know the normal normal consumer, um, John and Jane goes to the grocery store. It, inflation is absolutely higher than they've they've said that it is, and there are these structural reasons that it's it's not going to just reverse, um, or even necessarily moderate down to three or four percent. So we have this higher you know inflationary floor due to structural reasons. But then on the other hand. And I don't disagree, you know, the, the idea that you want to have dry powder to go asset shopping, you know, buy assets at a discount, but that dry yeah. powder, it's losing value at, you know, at, at a rate of like 1% a month or some, you know, yes. so is this a paradox or am I just, you know, not smart well, enough to. It has a lot to do with timing. Like how long are you going to be sitting on dry powder? It used to be that some family offices and and larger funds might sit on money for a year, maybe 18 months before they would make an acquisition. And now you see them waiting just like a quarter, maybe six months. And I think that's what you're going to start seeing is these like really quick turnarounds. So I think that, yes, Buffett just liquidated $4 billion, but I I bet he spends it in the first quarter. I think he'll spend it. I think he'll spend it in the first quarter of 2023. I don't know on what, but we'll see here. So the one thing that I um, kind of, I was trying to buy a pipeline in 2020 
with a friend of mine and um, it was crazy because I was also buying Occidental stock in 2020 in April when it, when oil went to negative 40. So yeah. I bought a bunch of Occidental stock because I like Occidental as a company. And then you had what Buffett buy a ton of Occidental stock at the beginning of the year, right? So mine, mine, I'm up 350%. He's bought a bunch of stuff, but in 2020, he wasn't buying Occidental stock. He was buying pipeline. And so he bought basically all of the natural gas pipelines in the United States are now owned by Brookshire Hathaway. <laughs> I did not so, know that. I don't know, okay. yeah. I don't know what he's buying with his four million four billion billion dollars, but he'll, I bet he does it in the first quarter. Okay. So you're expecting some uh what's the word? Some some pretty healthy market activity, market disruption, price corrections, distressed assets, sales, and so on in Q1, as soon as Q1. Yeah, I I do. Something something that he's probably been paying attention to, and I'd have to do some more research on what he's been doing. But uh, when he makes a big headline like that, it's usually because he's prepared to go do something else within the next six months. Okay. So let's take a high level then. If, if I'm a smaller family office or I'm an LP, you know, I'm a high net worth accredited investor, uh, maybe rebalancing my portfolio as we head into the end of the year. Um Disclaimer, you know, I'm not a financial advisor. Kelly's not a financial advisor. This is not financial advice, but realistically, what does an investor do then? Um, rebalance portfolio, maybe let some ride in stocks and bonds. Obviously, you don't want to kind of go from one extreme to the other, but you know, I'm almost thinking of like the the what is it the 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 25% portfolio model where like 25% is in cash 25% is in uh, alternatives or real assets and then stocks and bonds i mean is that the kind of model that people should be looking at right now yeah i think that the the traditional 60 40 is like ugh. um yeah i think now that people have more exposure to the alternative space we have podcasts like this we have the internet there's more you know, publications going out about the different types of opportunities, you know, Reg D offerings, 506Cs with gen like you have the general solicitation exemption. So you're, you're seeing a lot more information about other opportunities outside of the, uh, outside of wall street. So I think that there's going to be a shift. There should be a shift and, you know, conservatively, depending on what your age is and risk tolerance and everything. Again, I'm just a crazy person that manages money. I'm not a financial advisor, but, um, you know, you should consider doing somewhere between 10 and 20% in something non-correlated. Um, and a lot of people take that as I'm going to put 20% in real estate. And it's like, well, all of that 20% should be diversified, not just 20% plopped into something, one asset. Um, it's this should be exposed to that space completely. It's the same way as you don't have 60% of your portfolio in one stock, right? You have it spread across a bunch of different stocks. It's the same with alternative allocation. If you're going to be in the alternative space, like be allocated across a bunch of different alternatives with that small portion of your portfolio. Um, I think now is a great time to, you know, recalibrate how you're invested and you should really think about tax strategies because, you know, we just printed a lot of money and they have to get it back from somewhere. And so the first place they're going to go is your, you know, where your where's your taxable money coming from? So we have a lot of people moving into retirement. We have a lot of people that are going to be, you know, passing away and passing down legacies. So what is your estate attack situation? Um, 
if you're if you have things that are in a traditional IRA, you know, do you have the capability to making that into a Roth IRA? And you know, what's your strategy from that? Do you have money in real estate? Do you want to sell your real estate? You know, do you want to know what other options are besides 1031 exchanging? Um, because all that does is kick the tax bill down the road. Mm-hmm. And tax it was meant for tax savings, like you would save that until taxes were lower and then you could take your gains out. Your situation now is that taxes are only going to go up. So the more that you can, more cash that you can take off the table in a tax efficient way, the better. Um, And that's what we like to focus on at Alternative Wealth, because I come from two parents that were CPAs and tax accountants. So when we, when we make investments, yeah, it's in my blood. I was doing my taxes at 15. So, um, you know, everything that we do is tax efficient. We try to make sure that we're buying assets in the most tax efficient way possible. Um, or we work with clients because I have a CPA that sits to my board. I work very closely with an estate attorney. Um, you know, we it's a it's a team effort here to make sure that if you're putting money with us, is it the most tax efficient way possible? Is there a part of your portfolio that could benefit from these types of assets that might help you move money around. It doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to dump all that money in with us, but it does help you, you know, invest with us later on when we can save you $2 million in your IRA. So, which we did for one client. So. All right. Well, you know, tax efficiency is one of those things. It may not be that exciting, although I think Kelly, you find it exciting, but some (laughs) of us find it exciting, but it's, it's like guaranteed. I almost want to call it alpha right? Like tax efficiency is like guaranteed return booster. Well, yeah, it definitely boosts your returns. And especially, I know we go back to oil and gas a lot, but especially in oil and gas, when you're talking about, you know, you put a million dollars in oil and gas, and if if a majority of that is your intangible drilling cost, you're talking about lowering your taxable income by a million dollars. If you're in the highest tax bracket, that's $300,000 worth of savings. Um, You know, what could you do with $300,000 that you're not paying to Uncle Sam? Absolutely. So I, I know we're almost out of time, but I wanted to ask about that energy fund that you all, has that fund already launched the, the new energy fund? Yes, we actually launched it last week. Um, we're raising $25 million for um, oil and gas development here in Texas, Oklahoma, and the North Dakota, Wyoming um, space. So the Bakken, um, we have some really incredible deals that are partnered with really big um family offices. So while we, we might come in with a million dollars, the other half of that's coming in with a hundred million dollars. So, you know, what might seem really risky for us is just another check for a much larger firm. Um, and, and so that's a kind of opportunity you get to participate in, you know, with the smaller check, like a hundred thousand dollars or $200,000, you're, you're playing at the same table as a billion dollar, uh, oil and gas deal. Um, so you get that kind of support. So it's a kind of cool opportunity. There's a ton of tax advantages to that. Um, we separated the energy fund from our diversified fund because we already did drilling in the diversified fund. Um, we had about four or $5 million invested in drilling. Those successful wells, we now have the opportunity to do infill drilling. So drilling around that successful well. So just doing further development. And instead of doing that inside the diversified fund where we already have that exposure, we're just separating it and putting it in the energy fund so that it maximizes the tax return benefits for the investor uh, while mitigating the risk because we've already involved in these fields. Absolutely. Are you seeing a lot of excitement among individual investors for the energy space? 
Oh yeah. Cause I think that we're running out of time with our, our tax benefit in that space. Mm-hmm. So it really has a lot to do with, you know, who gets elected into office um, in 2024 of how vulnerable that uh, tax break is. So for now we're just taking advantage of it while we can. Sense of urgency, right? It never, never hurts to have that sense of urgency. So Kelly, where can our viewers and listeners go to learn more about both of the funds that we mentioned as well as alternative wealth partners? Yeah. So um, we are currently working on our website. So if you just go to www.alternativewealthpartners.com, there's a link in there. It says learn more or invest uh, or learn how to invest or some, some button like that. Um, it'll take you to our dashboard, which is our um, kind of our deal dashboard. This is where the investors go. Once they're invested, they can access the back end of it. But all of our funds are available on there. So people can go and click through them and learn about them. And if they choose to, they can actually just click and invest right there. Um, we are also going to be featured on IRA Club's uh, marketplace. So if you're not familiar with uh, self-directed IRA custodians, IRA Club is out of uh, Chicago and they are becoming a broker dealer. So that's kind of a cool thing. So they actually have a self-directed IRA marketplace. So we've been through all the background checks and all of the everything. Um, So we're going to be on their platform. So if you have retirement accounts, you want to move into that, um, they're a great custodian. Um, And then if you want to learn more about me and everything that I've been on, then you can always visit my website, which is kellyannwinget.com. It has all of my podcast recordings, including our first meeting, Andy, and then um, any of the publications I've been in, which most recently has been Forbes and soon to be D Magazine in Dallas. Great. Yeah. And and I should mention, you know, Kelly, I see you everywhere across the web. I follow your LinkedIn and everything. And um, I always like talking with you just to kind of uh, get your viewpoint on macro, even just from a little bit of a different angle you know you're always very professional and polished but you also tell it like it is you tell it straight and what you're seeing with your deal flow so i just i absolutely love your perspective and i also want to mention regarding your funds that alternative wealth partners and kelly will be appearing at the alts expo which is upcoming on december 8th so family offices rias and wealth managers and accredited investors can register for that event it's free for advisors and investors to attend and the alternative wealth partners slot is at 10:45 a.m. eastern time so we're looking forward to speaking with you again then and learning more about your offerings um, at that event kelly thanks so much for coming on the show today and uh, you know sharing all of your insights with us thank you andy it's always fun to talk to you it for our show today a huge thank you to you our listener if you like this episode please rate and review us on apple podcasts the alternative investment podcast is produced by the alternative investment database online at altsdb.com you can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and access the show notes by visiting altsdb.com podcast and we'll be back soon with another episode 